All right, go ahead and grab a seat. There's a lot in there, right? There is a lot in there, and uh, we have about 30 minutes to try and cover all of it. Uh, here's what I will tell you. Uh, we do not have a closing song tonight, not because I am planning on going long, uh, but it's just the way it worked out tonight, okay? So if we don't do a closing song, don't think, oh, there he goes going long again. Ha-ha, <laughs> all right? Anyway, hey, we got a lot to get into, so we're going to dive right in. There's three things that we're going to see in this passage tonight, and the first thing is this, a plain command. A plain command. Here, God gives Saul a very straightforward command, right? If, if you follow, uh, if you read in, in uh, the Old Testament, what you find is that God oftentimes is giving commands to the people of Israel, and he's giving commands to the people of Israel through his prophets, right? And here, Samuel, God tells Samuel what to say to Saul, and he goes ahead and tells him. He tells him what, he gives him this command. It's very important that we see this, that this command is very straightforward, God does not beat around the bush. He doesn't overcomplicate it. He simply says, I am the Lord, now go do this. I am the Lord, go do this. As is often the case, right, God's command here was not complicated. It was not broad. It was not hard to understand. It was not confusing. It was very straightforward. And just as a side note, something that I want us to understand tonight is this, is that God, when God gives commands, they are not complicated, when God gives commands, they are not complicated. God's commands are very straightforward. God's commands are very straightforward. They're not complicated. They're not confusing. What God desires from you, I want you guys to understand this. What God desires from you is readily available to you in your own language for many of you in your hands. So many people speak about, I don't know what God wants me to do with my life. I don't know what God wants me to do. I will tell you that if you don't know what God wants you to do, it's because either you've never read this or possibly maybe you just haven't really thought about it that way. Now, obviously, God has, there's, you know, here's the thing I want you to know. God's desire for everyone in this room is this, to live a life that brings him honor and glory. Now, how you live that out in your life specifically is going to look different. Right? And we talk about, okay, what does, how does God want me to do that specifically? That's a different conversation. But I want you to understand is that if you want to know, everyone in here has a very specific thing that God has called you to do, and that is to live your life in a way that brings him honor and glory and makes him known to other people. That is what God wants from you. God's commands are not complicated. They are straightforward. But I want to make sure that we understand something here. That does not mean that they are always easy to obey. While God's commands are not complicated, that does not necessarily mean that they are not difficult to obey. For instance, God commands us to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. That is not easy. It is not easy to share the gospel with people. I, I, I understand that. It's weird, right? Because I share the gospel with you guys every week, but I acknowledge the fact that in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, that can be very hard. It can be intimidating. But I want you to understand, it may be hard, but it's not difficult to understand. I know I need to share the gospel. I need to tell people about Jesus. I need to encourage people to follow Jesus. Yes, absolutely I do. Now, that is not hard to understand. It is hard to do, but not hard to understand. Now, this is a side note for now, but I want you to pay attention to it because it's going to be very, very important as we move forward. It's going to be very, very important as we move forward in the story. So here God gives a command to Saul, and it is very, very clear. Go and destroy the Amalekites. 
Now, to give you a little bit of context, right, we kind of see it a little bit in the passage, but God speaks of how the Amalekites attacked Israel. So if you read uh, in the book of Exodus, what you'll find is as Israel is leaving Egyptian slavery, uh, as they're they fresh out of Egypt, uh, Amalek is the first nation to attack Israel for no reason other than violence and greed, they attack Israel when Israel is at their most vulnerable, at their weakest point. And because of this, God swears that he will blot out Amalek from the nations. God will execute his judgment on the Amalekites. And he doesn't do it right then and there. He does it 400 years later in this story. Now, yes, God is going to be judging the Amalekites for what had happened previously, but he's also going to be judging them for what they are doing currently. But his command is very simple. Destroy them. Devote them to destruction. Do not spare them. The word uh, harem, which is to utterly destroy, is used seven times in this passage. Seven times. So the emphasis was clear. It was not confusing what God was calling Saul to do. It was very straightforward. Utter, utterly destroy them and spare no one and no thing. Now, at this point, we're... At this point, where we're going to probably have an issue is in what we just read, right? Probably going to have an issue. It's like, okay, man, God's commit, destroy man, woman, child, ox, everything? Why would he do that? Now, I'm not naive, okay? I understand that you live in a culture, I live in a culture that is very hostile to the Bible, Hopefully you're not naive. Hopefully you understand that as well. Right? We live in a culture that is very hostile to the Bible and especially hostile to passages like this one. This is kind of where we need to have a, a proper understanding of modern apologetics, okay? And here's what I mean by that. There was a time, there was a time that it used to be that people who were not Christians, people who were unbelievers, they adamantly argued and denied the existence of God. They would say God does not exist, and they would look to science and all these different things to try and prove that, uh, to try and, sorry, disprove the possibility of a creator God. And, and what you find nowadays is not that people deny the existence of God. Now, you may see this every once in a while, but that's not necessarily what you see. There's a new kind of unbelief that you see here. It's not that people deny the existence of God, but rather they deny the knowability of God. Many unbelievers today are actually quite spiritual. They're very open to, to spiritual things and, and believing in some form of a higher power, whether it be karma or people believing that they can manifest their reality. People believing in guardian angels, people who say that they're trying to, you know, the, the positive vibes in the universe and, 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 and all these different things, or even some understanding of a God. See, what you find, if you pay attention, is that people are very, actual, they're, they're very spiritual at heart. So most people today are not trying to deny the existence of God. They're trying to deny the knowability of God. It's not that they, they would not stand up and say God does not exist. They're saying that God cannot be known. God cannot be known. So rather than attack God's existence, what they do is they attack God's revelation of himself, which is Scripture. 
right? They attack scripture. The, the, the reliability and the validity and the truth of the Bible is what is under attack. People will say that you can't trust that the Bible is true. They'll say that all religions have a piece of the truth, but no one religion has all of the truth. They kind of give this example. I don't know, may I, is this resonating with anyone? Have you ever heard this? Okay. They give this example. It's like they give this example of three blind men walking through a forest. And as they're walking through the forest, they run into a, a giant elephant. And they're trying to figure out what they run into. And the first blind man is feeling the side of this elephant. He goes, guys, I think we, we just ran into a, a giant wall. And then the other one grabs the trunk of the elephant. He goes, no, guys, this is a giant snake. And then the other blind man grabs the leg of this elephant. He goes, no, this is just a, a really big tree. And what they say is, is that all three blind men have a piece of the larger truth, but none of them are correct. But there's a problem with that analogy. It is told from the perspective of the person who sees that it is an elephant. It's told from the perspective of a person who isn't blind. So when someone says all religions have pieces of truth in them, but none of them has the truth, that person is claiming to have the truth. Which obviously we know that they don't. See, people will say that God may be real, but you can't know him because your Bible is flawed. People will attack the Bible. So what we need to understand is we need to be able to understand when there's complicated and difficult passages of Scripture like this one, how do you answer those questions? How do you answer those questions? People will go to passages like this. Right? One of the arguments that people will say is that the Bible commands or Bible validates genocide. If you don't know what genocide is, that is, the, that is extermination of a race of people based on their ethnicity or the color of their skin or whatever. Right? This, is, this, is, this, this is what people will say, that the Bible gives credence to uh, genocide. They'll then point to passages like this where God commands Israel to wipe out a specific group of people and they will equate this with like the Holocaust. And what they'll do is they'll say that the Bible approves of racial and ethnic cleansing. So how do we answer that? Because it's right here. We can't just ignore it. How do we answer that? Here's how you answer this. We need to see that one, God is not commanding genocide, nor does the Bible ever justify racial extermination. Nowhere in the Bible do we see this. See, God is not commanding Saul to destroy the Amalekites because they are Amalekites. He's commanding Saul to destroy the Amalekites because they are sinners. You with me? It has nothing to do with their ethnicity. It has everything to do with their ethics. God is commanding the judgment of a group of sinful people. See, in the Old Testament, God would use Israel to accomplish his purposes in the world. And at many times, God uses Israel as his instrument to judge the nations. Now, it's very, very important that we understand something, that it's very important that we understand for us today that God does not call his people to do this today. Okay? God does not call you and I to do this. In fact, we're actually commanded to do the opposite. Romans, Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. See, we're called to live peaceably with all people. In fact, the only time when you and I as Christians are commanded to judge is when we're commanded to judge those inside the church. 
for the purpose of holding one another accountable. 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13 says this, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So you and I are not commanded, nor are the people of God ever used as a tool of God's judgment in the world today. But at this specific time, in this specific context, this is what God would do. God is judging the Amalekites for their sinfulness. So the question that we should ask is not, why is God destroying this entire group of people? Rather, the question we should be asking is, why doesn't God destroy everyone? He is just in his judgments. The question is not, why is he doing this to them? The question is, why doesn't he do this to Israel? Why doesn't he do this to everyone? Why doesn't he do this to you and to me? That's the question we should ask. And the answer is this. It's because of God's mercy. If you think that you are any less deserving of this type of judgment from God, then you are mistaken. It's God's mercy, and it's his greater plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. See, what you'll find is that this command is not about Israel. It's not about Saul. This is about God and business that he has with Amalek. That is it. Likewise, we should, we should be very cognizant that whenever God gives commands to his people, whenever God gives commands to you or to me, we need to remember that there is always a bigger picture that has to do with God's purposes in the world. When God commands you and when God commands me, we need to understand that it's bigger than you and me. God is seeking to accomplish his purposes in his world. That for us to disobey what God has clearly commanded is to take our will and assert it over God's in his world. It would be like you walking into my house and telling me how to arrange the furniture. That will not work. So we see a plain command. The second thing we see is partial obedience. So what happens? Saul gets this command, and what does he do? He rallies the troops. Let's go, boys. And they to go. He rallies his troops. He goes forward to do what God has commanded him to do. Now, remember, remember, this is very important, that the command was straightforward. The command was not confusing. The command was simple. Destroy everything and everyone. Do not spare them. What happens? Verse 8. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Mistake number one. And, to devote, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Notice, verse 3, God commands, do not spare them. Verse 9 says, but Saul and the people spared them. There was no confusion here. There was no, oh, I didn't know that's what you meant. This is direct disobedience. He says, take nothing for yourself. And it's important to note that there are many times in the Bible when God allows the people of Israel to take spoils from their military victories. 
There's times where God allows them to, when they uh, conquer or when they defeat an enemy, they're allowed to take the spoils of what they have, but not here. There's another instance where we see this, and that's in the book of Joshua, when the people of Israel fight against Jericho. He doesn't allow them to do it there either. And why is this? Why is this so different? Because this was not about advancing Israel. This was between God and the Amalekites. Israel was simply a tool. Israel was just a tool of God's judgment. It was wrong for anyone in Israel to benefit from the battle because the battle was not about Israel. It would be like this. Imagine for a moment that there is a murderer who has just been judged. He's just been judged and he has been sentenced to the death penalty. He's been sentenced to the death penalty. He's been sentenced to death by hanging and the executioner goes to to exact this judgment onto this murderer and, and this is what happens. The man is executed and as he is hanging, the executioner goes through the murderer's pockets. That is essentially what is happening. That's what's happening. Israel is simply a tool, but what they're doing is they're putting themselves where they do not belong. And now we begin to see the problem. See, Saul went into battle, and he partially did what he was supposed to do. Right? I mean, he destroyed the people. Well, most of them. He obeyed partially, but he did not obey fully. And here's the thing I want you to take note of. Partial obedience is still disobedience. Partially obeying God is fully disobeying God. You and I do not have the right to choose which commands of God we want to take seriously and which commands of God we want to dismiss. This is extremely important. Extremely important. I'm going to say this again because I, I, I see, I, I've seen a couple people kind of talking and laughing, and I get it, you know. Hey, this is hard, you know, to pay attention and lean into, but I need you to focus for me for a second. You and I do not have the right to determine what commands of God we want to take serious and what commands of God we don't want to take serious. This is so important for us to understand today because we live in a culture, especially you as teenagers, live in a culture where people want to tell you this. You can still be a Christian and do blank. You can still be a Christian and do blank. You can still be a Christian and exercise your sexuality however you want to. Please understand when I say this, I mean this with as much love as I can. No, you can't. No, you can't. You cannot. The very definition of being a follower of Christ is that we submit ourselves to his kingship. We surrender our wants. We surrender our opinions at the feet of Jesus and we take up what he says is right. Even if we struggle to do so. Now, it's important that we say this. Do we always obey perfectly? No, of course not. Of course not. We fail regularly. I fail regularly. But I want you to understand something that we do not, that the reason we fail is because of the weakness of our flesh. 
right? The reason that you and I sin is because of the weakness of our flesh, not an indifference to God's commands. There's a difference. There's a difference between saying, I take God's commands seriously, but my sinful flesh is weak to being able to carry them out perfectly, and saying that God has given me this command, but I choose not to listen to it. There is a massive difference between the two. You cannot treat God's commands as optional and say you're a Christian. You can't. We should never disobey because we don't take God's word seriously. By the way, I want to make a very important point. This is not legalism. I'm not telling you your salvation is dependent on this. I'm not saying your salvation is dependent on your efforts and your works. That is not the gospel. However, the Bible is extremely clear, extremely clear, that the evidence that you are a Christian is that while you may struggle, you take seriously God's commands because your heart has been changed in such a way that you want to obey him. No Christian hears the commands of God, knows the commands of God, and willingly desires to disobey them. Now you may struggle, you may still have sinful desires because we have a sinful flesh, and that is totally understandable. But there's a difference between struggling with sin and openly submitting yourself to it. Notice also what exactly they did. Saul kept Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Now, there's, we don't really know exactly why he did this. Most likely, the reason he did this is he did it as a way to signify his triumph over the Amalekites. Rather than kill the king, what he does is he takes the king as a prisoner and walks around with him and be like, hey guys, look who that is. You know who that is? Yeah, that's that guy, right? Yeah, look how awesome I am. To parade himself. To glorify himself. And this, is, this would make sense, considering in a few verses we see that what does he do? He builds a statue of himself. But not only that, not only do they do that, but they destroyed the things that they did not want, and they spared the things that they considered valuable to them. Verse 9, right? But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs. All that was good... And would not, uh, and, and not, and sorry, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. You see, they obeyed God. Please, this is so important. They obeyed God as far as it benefited them. They obeyed God as far as they could benefit from it. They kept the things that they thought were enjoyable for themselves, and the things that were of no interest to them, they devoted to destruction. You see the problem with this? By the way, this is many Christians today, or professing Christians. Just as a, as a side note, it does not glorify God when you give him the things that you didn't want anyway. I'll say that again. It does not glorify God when you give him the things that you didn't want anyway. I think of the rich young ruler in the Gospel of Luke. Sorry, not gospel, the gospel of Matthew and Mark. He comes to Jesus, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the law and the commandments, obey them, obey the commandments, obey the law. 
And this rich young ruler, having a pretty high view of himself, says, all of these I have kept since I was a child. And Jesus, knowing his heart, says this, yes, but one thing that you lack, go and sell all that you own. What happens? The man walks away sad. Isn't it interesting that we don't even know this man's name? All we know about him is what he valued most, his riches. He went away sad. Why? Because he was totally willing to do the things that were easy. But he was, t- he was totally willing to give to God to the things he really didn't want. But when it came down to the things that he cherished, he says, no, that's mine. This is not Christianity. This is not what it means to submit yourself to the lordship of Jesus. We see here that Amalek was to be destroyed because of their sinfulness. Because of their sin. Now just picture with me for a moment that that Amalek represents sin. And God is commanding for this sin to be destroyed. However, in Israel deciding to keep certain aspects of it for their enjoyment, they were in essence reserving some root of evil that they deemed to be enjoyable to them. You see, while they were God's tool of judgment, and this is so important, while they were to be used as God's tool of judgment against the Amalekites, the the sinful desires that brought God's judgment on the Amalekites existed in Israel as well. So, for them to destroy everything would mean for them to destroy things that they themselves would actually like to have too. And if we're honest, if we're honest, this is where many of us are guilty of partial obedience. This is where many of us are guilty of partial obedience. As a follower of Jesus, this is so important, as followers of Jesus, we are called to surrender our lives to him. And I know that this is kind of Christian-y and you hear this a lot, so maybe it kind of falls on deaf ears or it's kind of numb to you, but I want you to think of the idea of surrender. That you take your life and you surrender it to God. Repeatedly, the New Testament authors give us imagery of what this looks like, and they give us this imagery of being crucified. That when we follow Jesus, we put to death our sinful desires, we put to death our old way of life, and we say yes to his. Galatians 2.20, this is a great verse if you want to memorize it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 9, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself daily. Sorry, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Now to us, we hear this all the time, but I want you to imagine for them, take up this instrument of execution and carry it every day. What does he mean by this? What does this look like? Well, in this time, when someone was sentenced to crucifixion, they would carry their cross that they were to be executed on. They would carry their cross from the place of their sentencing to the place of their execution. And when you saw a man carrying his cross, you knew that is a dead man walking. That man has no more hopes. That man has no more personal aspirations. That man has no more dreams about the future of his life. His life was basically over. 
Likewise, when we place our faith and our trust in Jesus, we submit ourselves to being followers of Jesus. You know what that means? It means that all of my personal dreams, all of my aspirations, all of the things that I hoped to be true about my future, I take them, I place them in the hands of God, and I say, here, you do with me what you want. I take all of the things that I want, whatever it may be, and I place them in God's hands and say, God, if that's what you want for me, awesome, but you know what? I give those to you. You do with me what you want to do with me. Our only dream is to be faithful to glorify God. That's all I want. Our desires, while they may not be bad, and if, here's the thing, you may actually get some of them, not all of your personal dreams that you want for your life are bad. What? I mean, I have a beautiful wife and a beautiful daughter. I wouldn't say I'm suffering, but if God's will for my life was that I did not have those, you know what? I should find my joy not in the things that I have, not in the things that I personally want, but I would allow God to shape my desires. That's what being a follower of Jesus looks like. My desires are ultimately swallowed up by his desires. They're ultimately swallowed up by the desires of him who calls me. Know this. There is no such thing as partially following Jesus. Either you are fully following Jesus or you are fooling yourself. And the reason I preach like this to you guys is because I think, I say this to people all the time. Matthew 7, when Jesus speaks of, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who do the will of my Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name and do that in your name and do this in your name? And you see, I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. What is going on there? What's happening is this, is Jesus is saying, first of all, not everyone who talks about heaven is going there. And two, there are many people. He doesn't say some. He doesn't say few. He says, many will say to me on this day. And what is it? That they are convinced they have a relationship with God only to stand before him and find out that they don't. And my heart's desire for you is not to get you in here so we can have pizza and fill up the room. My heart's desire for you is not for you to just have a good self-esteem and go out there every single day feeling good about yourself. My heart's desire for you is to know that you know that you know that you are right with God. And if you don't know that, then I am not doing my job. I will preach until I'm blue in the face if it means that you know where you are. And if in hearing the words of God, you learn, you know what? I don't think I'm right with Jesus. You know what? That's a good thing to know because there's a, you can do something about that. You do something about that. Now, you may hear scripture say this and you say, well, you know, that seems a little extreme, you know? Like, I'm cool with God. You know, I'm cool with God and stuff, but I don't want to surrender everything. I mean, everything, like, man, for me to follow Jesus, that means I'd have to give up some things that I really, really enjoy. I don't want to do that. And I want you to know that if that is your response to what I have just told you, you fit in really well with Israel. You fit in really well with Israel. We see 
We see a plain command. We see partial obedience. The last thing we see is this. is a painful result. We continue reading, and we see some interesting verses here. We see God's response, and we see Samuel's response. First thing we see is this. Verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Now, this is a phrase that is very confusing. God regretting? What does that mean? What does it mean for God to say that he regrets something? When we think of regret, we think of it this way, right? We think of it like, man, like this is when I think of regret. I think, okay, man, if I, ha- if I could go back and do it again, I would do it different. Right? There was something that happened because of a decision that I made, and I did not expect this outcome. So if I can go back and do it again, I would change the way I did it. Is that what God means? Did God not know what Saul would do? Of course not. Of course he knew what, God, what Saul would do. He said in chapter 8, this is what your king will do. Nothing about this surprises God. Nothing about this surprises God. God knows all things. So how can God regret a decision that he has made knowing that if he could go back, he wouldn't change it? How does this happen? Well, in the original language, the word means to be moved to pity. He's emotionally moved. He is grieved to have compassion. Ultimately, this is something called, and it's a big word, anthropomorphism. Yeah, I know. There's your college word for the day. Anthropomorphism. Ultimately, it's this. It's a way that God explains himself to man in human terms. It's like this. If I was to take, you know, so when Carly was born, you know, I, I know, and here's the thing, like, I know as a, as a father, my job is to raise my child to know Jesus. So here's the thing, I can't make my child love Jesus, but I can set her up on as many dates as possible with him. You know what I'm saying? She's born, she is like, she is like fresh out of the oven, okay? And I'm holding her. And I'll never forget this. I, I was like, I, yeah, I don't know. And I remember holding her, and I remember I was like telling her the gospel, right? And I was like, all right, Carly, you're going to learn, you're going to hear a lot about this through your life, so let's just get this started now. I was like, like, God, it's hard to explain, you know, but he loves you, and and he created the world perfect, and and this is so hard for me to say to my little baby, right? I'm like, and and, and we sin, you know, but like, you're, you know, I, I get it, you know, like we're sinners, like not you, you're perfect, but I guess you kind of are. And I'm like, I'm like giving this like, this overly simplified gospel presentation to my child. Okay, one, I know she doesn't understand it, but two, even if she did, I'm not going to be able, I'm not going to stand before my one-year-old and say, all right, Carly, let's talk about penal substitutionary atonement, okay? No, no, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I need to take it and put it into terms that she can understand, Likewise, know this, guys, that when God explains himself to you, he must use words that you are comfortable with so that you can even begin to grasp who he is. So you can even begin to grasp who he is. For instance, when scripture says that God is our rock, this doesn't mean that God is inanimate. This does not mean that God is silent like a rock. You see, this especially is true, or sorry, you see this especially when you read the prophets having visions of the throne room of God. Or when you read of John's revelation, in the book of Revelation, he says that his voice like the sound of roaring waters. 
What is he doing? He is like, I am trying to express to you what I cannot express. Ultimately, God has chosen to reveal himself to us through his word. But understand this. God is condescending himself into language to help us understand some of what he is like. But understand this. In order for the finite, us, to, uh, to grasp and understand the infinite God, God must use that which is not him to describe him. Does this make sense? We see this similarly in passages that speak of God's holiness. Or it says God is holy, holy, holy. Why does he repeat it? Why does, why does it repeat it three times? Essentially, it's saying that God does not, that holy does not fully describe who God is. It is a feeble attempt. Essentially, it's saying that God is holiest to the complete degree. He is holy. If you read this kind of in the original language, how it would naturally read is this. It is, he is holy. He is holier. He is holiest. It's been a while, so I had to dust off some A.W. Tozer for you. And A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, in chapter 2, puts this, he has this quote. He says, When the Spirit would acquaint us with something that lies beyond the field of our knowledge, he tells us that this thing is like something we already know. But he is always careful to phrase his description so as to save us from slavish literalism. For example, when the prophet Ezekiel saw heaven opened and beheld visions of God, he found himself looking at that which he had no language to describe. What he was seeing was wholly different from anything he had ever known before, so he fell back upon the language of resemblance. When he says like this, as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like that of burning coals of fire. He continues on in the same chapter. He says, when we try to imagine what God is like, we must, out of need, use that which is not God as the raw material for our minds to work with. Hence, whatever we visualize God to be, he is not. What does this mean? It means this, is that the words here cannot properly express the infinitude of God. See, we see that there's a sense of grief that comes upon God and we should see this, that while God is not surprised by disobedience, he is not unmoved by it. But God is moved when we disobey. He is grieved when we disobey. Disobedience does not move the heart of God. Sorry, sorry, uh, sorry. Disobedience moves the heart of God, and the best way to describe it would be that of regret and sorrow. Although it is not like our regret. Isaiah 55, when God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, we could probably similarly put it this way. My regret is not your regret. The second response is that of Samuel. We're almost done. Samuel is angry. He prays all night, and he wakes up early the next morning to go confront Saul. My boy is ready to roll. Wakes up early in the morning to go and talk to Saul. He swallows the big frog first, if you know what I'm talking about. Verse 13, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of God. Saul says, I did it. Saul says, I did what you called me to do. And Samuel says, oh, really? Then where would all these sheep come from? Where would all these ox come from? What are you talking about? Saul says, look at my obedience. And Samuel says, yeah, if you were so obedient, where did all this stuff come from? 
Understand this. There is always evidence of disobedience. You may think you can hide disobedience, but you can't. You can't. See, when confronted, we see that Saul immediately is on the defense. I'm trying to fly through this so, for the sake of time, right? He's immediately on the defense. It's hard to tell, but it seems like Saul really is blind to his own sin. It seems like he legit does not even realize. I want you to see something here, that sin will, will have a way of doing that to you. That sin will blind you to your sin many times. See, Saul does a few things here. He does three things. One, he denies doing anything wrong. I want you to know that you cannot be made right with God if you do not acknowledge the fact that you have sin. Then he blames the people. Interesting that earlier in the passage, it says that Saul and the people did this. Then Saul, what did he say? He goes, the people did it. The people did this, and they did all this stuff. And then thirdly, he tries to justify his sin. He says the people did this so that they could offer it as worship to God. He tries to cover up his wrongdoing by saying that they only disobeyed so that they could worship God with what they took. We did this for you, God. We wanted to please you. I know you said this, but, but, but what if I did that? God, I know you said you want this, but, but what if I did this instead? See, Saul presumed that what God said would, uh, sorry, Saul presumed that what God would be pleased with is actually not what he said. He assumed that God meant something other than what he clearly said. We do this a lot, too, when we're trying to justify our sin. We go to the Bible and say, the Bible says this, boom. All right, okay, well, he doesn't mean this right? Especially when we talk about gossip and talking about other people. See, y'all think I don't hear stuff. Y'all think I just, I, I just get up here on stage and I don't know anything that's going on. I know what's going on. Understand this. If you claim to be a Christian and you continually engage in gossip, there is a serious problem. Serious problem. Many people seek to do this all the time. God says this, but we change it to mean something else. We assume that God doesn't really mean what he says about sexuality. We assume that God doesn't really mean what he says about divorce. We assume that God doesn't really mean what he says about any other sin that we particularly like. He doesn't really mean what he means about making disciples. That's the pastor's job. And this is a dangerous thing for us to presume. And now we get to God's final verdict of Saul. What does he say? The final portion where he says, this is the, I said this is the ultimate point. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. There it is. The entire point of the story is summed up right here. God wants obedience. Do what I said. You want to glorify God? Do what he says. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? That's a real one. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Saul thought that he could disobey because his worship would make up for it. 
He assumed that, God's de- that God desired to be worshipped in a particular way when God really, w- all he wants is to be obeyed. Understand this, man does not have the right to assume that God desires to be worshipped other than how he has said he wants to be worshipped. Obedience to God is worship. It is worship. To say, I disobeyed so I could worship you does not make any sense. God would rather you obey than present your religious ceremony. I posted this on Instagram earlier today. Sunday worship that is not accompanied with Monday obedience is faulty worship. What makes weakened worship pleasing to God is the weekday obedience that accompanies it. Saul's problem wasn't that he neglected some ceremony. See, that's what what Saul thought obedience was. One commentator put it this way. In today's world, he might say, what? So God wants me to go to church more? All right, I'll go. But religious observance was not Saul's problem. The problem was that his heart became rebellious and stubborn against God. If religious observance did not help that problem, then it was no good. Ultimately, what we see is that God rejects Saul as king. He's going to rip the kingdom from him. And then Samuel starts to repent. Tries to avoid the consequences of his sin. Notice Samuel tells Saul that his real sin is rebellion and presumption. But Saul, even when he tries to ask for forgiveness of his sin, it says the wrong sin. I feared the people. No, that's not the problem, Saul. See, and then what does he say? Ultimately, we see that God's verdict is final. Saul was just trying to change God's mind, not repent. And if when you think repentance is you trying to change God's mind, that's not repentance. Ultimately, we see that Samuel executes judgment on Agag. Why? Because God's plan will always be carried out. So what do we do with this? Here's three things I want you to understand what we do with this. One, take God's word seriously. Two, take seriously what it means to be obedient. And three, trust Jesus when you're not fully obedient. Like I said earlier, none of us obey God fully. All of us are guilty of partial obedience. And here's the thing. Partial obedience will not win you a right standing before God. But here's the problem. If none of us can obey God fully, then how could we possibly have a right standing before God? You know how we do that? It's because of this. Jesus obeyed God fully. And he died in your place so not only when you accept, when you place your faith in Jesus, are you forgiven of your sins, but you receive the righteousness of Jesus. So when God looks at you, he sees you as one who has perfectly obeyed his commands. Do not trust your partial obedience to get you before God. Trust in the full obedience of Jesus. Jesus.